You know, there's many things about this time of year that we associate with Christmas. Um, Songs, movies, food, even phrases. And I was thinking about some of these phrases that when you hear them, you just automatically think Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Twas the night before Christmas, which I think is in a book. I haven't read that part, but I know it has something to do with Christmas. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, which is from the best Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So I could have easily answered that question for Dave the other day. Although I will admit that that part is probably the lowest part of that movie, is that that quote. How about Jesus is the reason for the season? You see that on cards a lot. You see that on even signs, Facebook posts. And one that I particularly enjoy is the thought of that Jesus is the greatest gift of all. And you often see that, that Jesus is, is our greatest gift. And that's why we give presents to each other, is to remind ourselves that Jesus himself was the gift for us. And it's true. To remind, it's to remind ourselves of that truth. Uh, but really, this, that phrase that Jesus is the gift doesn't quite go far enough because it doesn't explain what are some of these gifts that he's brought us besides himself. And the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, brought about a marvelous reality and, and really a gift that I want to focus on this morning, and that is the gift of adoption. And for Christians, adoption is not an uncommon thing. Christians have always been involved in adoption, even at the very beginning of the early days of the church. Uh, in, in Roman culture, if you didn't want a child, the earliest form of abortion was that you would just leave your child out for exposure. Or you'd leave them in a dumpster, or you'd leave them in a road ditch or a back alley somewhere. And they would just die, or they would get picked up by people who would uh, raise the kids for the purpose of slavery. And Christians, for the first time, as a group, were going and rescuing these kids and adopting them into their family. Several years back, a Barna study found that Christians adopt more than twice than all other adults. That's an incredible statistic. So it's not uncommon to find in churches those who have been either adopted themselves or have adopted children or in, foster, or in, the, or in the, the, the process of foster care with other kids or something like that. And so one may ask, why is it that Christians adopt more than any other group of people? Do they have a savior complex, a hero complex? They just have this weird thing for blended families. Now, adoption is not for every family. There's, there's many variables. This isn't a sermon to compel you to adoption, but I believe the reason so many Christians adopt is because they are captivated by the realization that their own relationship with God does not come from bloodlines or social status or nationality, but through the wonderful doctrine of adoption, through Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer, in a, a classic work that he did, a, a book he wrote many years back, He's with the Lord now, knowing God, says this about adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And I must say that I myself was in that category at one time, this Doctrine of adoption is so glorious, but I'll have to be honest, I didn't give it much thought. 
until our men's Bible study several years back was going through the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 specifically. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. The passage is this is the passage we'll be looking at. And, and when I when we studied that, the light came on and I was struck and I was forever changed by the incredible love that God has for his children. And so let's read that this morning. This is our text that we're going to be looking at this Christmas morning. This is a Christmas text, although one that may not always get much recognition. And it says this. This is what the Word of God says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I'm so humbled and honored to be able to preach your word this morning. And God, I cannot think of a better way to start out Christmas than to be with uh, my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially as we talk about uh, a wonderful truth of being brought into your family through adoption. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this morning. Would you uh, make my, my thoughts clear and my words accurate. In your name I pray. Amen. Now my hope for you this morning with this message is that it will bless you and it will cause you to recall God's overwhelming love for you. And this love really centers around the birth of Christ and has everything to do with Christmas. And so this passage breaks down into three sections because every good sermon has to have three points. It's the plan for Christmas, the mission for Christmas, and the purpose for Christmas, or if you want a, a simpler outline, the, the when and the how and the why. And as much as I would love to take 20 minutes and go through Galatians and lay out Paul's argument up to this point, I will not because these verses really stand out on their own. Many scholars think that the way Paul is writing this as kind of a standalone portion, even though it fits with his argument, lends itself to the fact that it might have been a very early church creed. That he's reciting or writing himself. But suffice it to say that the Galatian Christians were being tempted and lured away to reject the sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation and to blend it with a, a, a synchronized religion, a, a form of, of Jesus and law, of, of works and grace. And they were being tempted to dump what they had in Christ. And Paul is shaking them by the shoulders and showing them why on earth would you want to re do away with what you have in Christ, specifically your adoption? And like I said, this all has to do with Christmas, and we see this in verse 4 with the, our, the plan of our adoption. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, the first phrase is, is, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now, I've never been in the process of adopting someone, but I know lots of people who have. And I can tell you that everyone that I've talked to, no one says, hey, let's adopt somebody. And then the next day, there's a kid on their living room floor. It doesn't happen that quick. I mean, maybe there's some extreme circumstances where that's happened. But most of the time, if you want to adopt somebody, it takes careful thought, careful planning, and a very specific and detailed plan as to how that's going to come about. And it's no different with our adoption. The father had a perfect plan set for us. Now this is, a, 
an incredible phrase, the fullness of time, and it's just, it's just glorious. I, I, I don't do a lot. I'm not a very skilled reader, but I think this is just beautiful. This is beautiful writing. When the fullness of time had come. It means to make all things, all things are being made ready. Or all things are being made present or they're provided. Everything is happening up until this point. In the Greek culture, that word was often used of filling up a, a, something to its full capacity, like a cargo on a ship or a crew on a ship or a, a population of a room or a building. Now, my wife is, a, in my opinion, an accomplished cook. You, didn't, you gave me this illustration. She just didn't know it was going to be about her. And she makes a lot of good food, and really, the one thing she excels at is desserts. And her chocolate chip cookies are the stuff of legend. Dixon, I know you have been a self-proclaimed best cookie uh, maker, but I think it's probably my wife. Although I will tell you that I don't know the first thing about making the perfect chocolate chip cookie. However, I do know when is the best, the most perfect time to eat a chocolate chip cookie. It's, very, uh, it's a very important task, very skilled. Allison makes them, I test them. It's a good relationship. And the best, the most perfect time to eat a chocolate chip cookie is when? Just a, right out of the oven. Actually, a few moments after they are, they're out of the oven, they've kind of solidified their form. They've actually baked a little bit more, and so they don't quite fall apart when you pick them up, and then you taste it and just enjoy that warm, delicious, savory goodness. And to make a chocolate chip cookie, there's actually a lot of variables. And just thinking about all the things that go into place, the fact that all the, the ingredients have to be gathered, and they're usually gathered from all different parts of the country, sometimes parts of the world, all to come to a store in which my wife has to have the right time to go get the ingredients and then to mix the ingredients and then to set the, the, the oven at the right temperature and then to watch them carefully and pull them out so they can be ready at that exact time so that I can just stand there and pick one up and enjoy the fullness of that cookie. And that is a picture of what the fullness of time is. I'll, I'll be at a very silly picture. But it is all things coming together to the culmination of that one point. And this was the, the fullness of time. And we see that in history. Many things had to happen for the Messiah to come. People had to be gathered. Nations had to be formed. Prophecies had to be given and then fulfilled. And also, there had to be the right time for the launch of the gospel. Alexander the Great, when he conquered all those various nations, one of the things he did to solidify his empire was to export Greek thought, Greek philosophy, and most of all, a Greek language. And for the first time in human history, there was a, a common language. It's something we kind of take for granted because we think everyone should speak English, and a lot of people do speak English, but that wasn't always the way it had been. And so for the first time, because of the Greek language being a common language and a very, a very high language, all across the country, you could write a letter in Rome and it could be easily read in Iconium or Greece or somewhere in England or Alexandria or Jerusalem or Damascus. Now, the Romans built on what the Greeks had done to expand that empire, but they were very meticulous about how to keep the empire going. And they, they saw that the way to keep the Roman Empire going was through exports and trade and markets and the flow of money. And so they built vast shipping lanes. They made an intricate highway system 
And it's incredible. If you go to other parts of the country, some of these highways aren't still there. They're actually still in use. All that made travel a new possibility. And even during the time of Jesus was called the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And Augustus had united all the other nations of the Roman Empire. And he had established a common rule, uh, albeit a, a, a very tyrannical rule, but he, there was, everyone had to, had to obey the same rules, the same laws. We see this with Paul in using his Roman citizenship to get himself out of trouble. There was a common currency. There was a common mailing system. All of this made for political stability and travel and communication and the flow of thoughts and ideas and information possible. It was the perfect time for the spread of the gospel. Everything coming together at this one point at the birth of Christ in the fullness of time. But this phrase doesn't just refer to human history because God goes back farther than human history. And therefore it was the perfect time theologically In Ephesians chapter 1, you can turn there if you like, Paul says this also about adoption in verses 4 through 5. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God knew before the foundations of the world who he would adopt. Our adoption into the family of God is exactly on God's perfect timetable, not just on man's timetable. The text says that before God laid the foundations of the universe, he had you in mind, he had a plan to secure your adoption. And all this was done out of love for his glorious purpose and by his will. And many times in adoption, it's, it's because there's... Uh, there's problems biologically having children of their own. And so not every time, but oftentimes adoption is a plan B. But what we see from this text in, in Galatians and affirmed in Ephesians is that your adoption, your security in the family of God is not God's plan B. He's not reacting to something. It is, in fact, his chief plan to bring you into his family. Everything culminated in this one point. All of history pointed to this one moment when there would be the birth of a poor Jewish boy in a livestock pen in Bethlehem. And Romans 5 said that Jesus, at the right time, would die for the ungodly. Everything Jesus said and did and taught was exactly at the right time. And for our adoption to take place, there must not only be a plan, but there has to be someone to go and carry out that adoption. There has to be someone qualified. And we see that in God's plan, that it's carried out by none other than the Son of Jesus. And so we see the mission of Christmas. Look at Galatians 4 again, verse 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was sent. We talked about this last night with Brock in in John chapter 1. That the word was was with God and the word was God. Meaning that Jesus was fully divine. And this little phrase here is, is revealing and showing the full deity of Christ. Scott read from Colossians 1 this morning. It says, I'll remind you of it again. 
that everything was made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. And in Colossians 1.17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is fully and majestically divine. And so he is qualified to come and adopt us because he is the Son of God, part of the Trinity. But he's not just, he didn't just was sent by the Father. It says he was born of a woman. So not only was Jesus fully God, eternally existed with the Father, but that he actually came down and humbled himself to be born of a woman, showing his humanity. And Paul is making a really emphatic point here. And a lot of times with Christmas, we talk about the virgin birth of Christ. And I don't want to take away from that because it is a marvelous and majestic truth and a wonderful miracle. But Paul is drawing our attention to the humanity of Jesus. And really one of the most majestic and wonderful miracles of Christmas is that a supernatural God would have a natural childbirth. It's incredible. How does that happen? The theological word for this is the hypostatic union. And all that means is that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, inseparably united. So Jesus really did get hungry. And he really did feed 5,000 people by making loaves and fishes appear. He really did get thirsty, and he really did fill empty wine jars with aged wine. He really did get tired and slept on the ship and then was awakened and calmed the storm by the speaking of his word. He really did feel pain and the grief of losing a friend to illness. And then he really did raise Lazarus from the dead. He really did die on a cross as a human, and then he really did raise victorious over the grave as God. So Jesus really is one of us, and yet he is nothing like us. He is the only person qualified to take our place because he's human, and he's the only person qualified to go on that mission because he is divine. That is why we say all the time here that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. That's what we're talking about. But in order to secure our adoption, he has not only to be qualified and be able to be sent, but he has to, it has to be legal. And every adoption has to be legal. And so he was born under the law. And for our adoption, like I said, it has to be legal. Jesus was born under the Mosaic law or the Mosaic code, the, the law that was handed down to Israel in the book of Exodus. And this was God's perfect standard, and it was for the point of reflecting God's own holiness so that every time an Israelite broke the law, it was a reminder of God's holiness. And it was a reminder that they didn't measure up to God's standard and they needed a Savior, a Messiah, to come and rescue them from their sin. Now the law was a good thing, but it was a burden. And it was always meant to be temporary. Paul says this in, in the first couple of verses, 1 through 3 of Galatians 4. He says, The law is like a teacher and a steward towards young children who will inherit a great fortune. And when someone's a minor, you don't give them the fortune right away. Instead, you train them up and you teach them what they need to know so when they're mature and ready, they can receive their inheritance. And so, when Jesus came to earth and fulfilled every aspect of the law, both by his action and by uh, his, his, uh, his motives as well, He makes the giving of that inheritance a reality, and so the purpose of the law is fulfilled. It's done away with. For Jesus to be born under the law once again shows his humanity. And this is the great rescue mission that God has come in, in his humanity to redeem his creation. But why? For what purpose did Jesus come to redeem his lost creation? 
And Paul tells us, back in Galatians, verse 5, he says, He was sent by the Father to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we've seen up to this point the, the plan or the when and the mission or the how, and now we see the purpose. And really, Paul is giving two main words and what brings to mind two pictures, redemption and adoption. In first, redemption, Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem is to liberate. It's to make free. It's to set a captive free. It brings to mind this, this picture of someone who's on the auction block. They are without hope, can't do anything of their own, and someone steps in and pays their price and purchases their freedom. But brothers and sisters, we were not enslaved against our will. We happily put the chains around us, and we plunged ourselves into our sin willingly. And yet Christ steps up and pays our price and redeems us. He delivers us. He liberates us from the bondage of sin. And how does he do this? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says that we have redemption through the blood of Christ. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is making this point and he's using the same word, drawing his audience back to 3.13 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So it was not enough for the son to be born a human. Jesus instead had to bear our condemnation of the law so that he could redeem and purchase your freedom. Christmas then points to the cross. The Son of God was born a son of the woman in order to ransom his lost children. So what are they redeemed? They're redeemed then to what? What's the status? This brings us to the next picture that Paul is drawing their attention to as a, for adoption as sons. For Jesus doesn't just pay your ransom purchase you off the auction block, and then say, all right, there you go. Good luck with life. But he brings us home off the auction block. He brings us to his home. He gives us a new name. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a new status. Literally, adoption meaning to to place someone as a son. And the way Paul wrote this, that we might receive the adoption as sons, what he's getting at there is that this is pointing to a possibility, a something that has never been done before. So our adoption is not a gaining back of something that is lost. It's not uh, something that was lost or was taken away, but it's instating something new. Something that's never been done before. And in the Roman culture, this audience who had heard adoption, there was the, a thought would have come to their mind. There actually was a culture of adoption in that time. And unlike today, where it's often infants and children, in Roman culture, it was usually adults. And if a, a couple, usually a wealthy couple, if they didn't have a son, an heir, someone to pass on their inheritance, their family business, their family name to, then they could adopt someone else and bring them into their family. And so if you were a a young man, uh, even a poor man, and you had no, in that time you had no way of excelling through the system. The only way was to be adopted. 
Actually, many of the Caesars were adopted. Even Augustus, who was Caesar at the time of the birth of Christ, was adopted. And in Roman culture, the name was everything. The name was a legacy. It was a history. And that's why in Roman adoption, the newly adopted son didn't keep his, his old name. Everything that linked his old identity was done away with. Documents, papers, receipts, bills even were canceled. Everything was erased. And this wasn't a, a secret thing. This was a very public thing. Everything was done away with so that everyone recognized and saw that this man has, is their son as if he had always been their son. He was secure in his adoption. He had all the rights and privileges of, a, of an actual, natural-born son. And this is the picture that's coming to the mind of Paul's readers. But I want to I draw your attention to these two words. This, this is kind of a, an interesting picture that Paul is driving at because unlike in Roman adoption where people were adopted because they were, show, they were showing much merit to be a, a really solid citizen, brothers and sisters, there is nothing that we have to offer God to entice him to adopt us into his family. So why does he do it? Again, Ephesians chapter 2 says, because God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He purchased your adoption because he's chosen to do so. He has chosen to set his love on you even though you have nothing to offer him. And every adoption has a price. And what is the, the price of our adoption? It is sending his only son to take our place on the cross. Now, I love adoption stories. In preparation for this, I was reading a lot of adoption stories, many inspiring and moving adoption stories, many emotional adoption stories, some I considered using in this sermon. I love adoption. It's even a thought that I've entertained. Alice and I have talked about from time to time. But I tell you, I could never adopt a child if it meant that I had to take my son and so that he would take his place. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. My love does not extend that far. No matter how pitiful the situation, I couldn't do it. But friends, Jesus, God's love for you does extend that far. And if you think this is amazing, church, it actually gets even better. Verses 6 through 7 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, and if the son, then an heir through God. So notice there's a change in verb here. And because you are sons, why does he do that? Because the fullness of time had come. You have been adopted, Christian. Your price has been paid. You are now the status of a son of God. And in Roman adoption, the newly adopted son immediately had all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. Even if the couple had children later on, it could not undo what had been done. That son was the inheritance of the heir, of, was the heir of the inheritance. And by the way, Paul is not excluding women with the term sons. 
He's not a chauvinist. He's actually making a pretty interesting point here. He had just made a point earlier in chapter 3 where he says that when it comes to being an heir of God's promise, there is no distinction based on on ethnicity or gender or social status. He says in 3, 28 through 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, in that culture, daughters didn't receive inheritances, only sons. And so what Paul is saying here is that everyone, men, women, slave, free, Greek, Gentile, all are adopted sons, heirs of the promise. It's a radical thing to say, especially at that time. How do we know we are sons? Oftentimes, adoption brings a lot of questions to mind. There can be confusion. How do we know that we're really sons of God? Because the Father has sent the Spirit into our hearts, says Paul, causing us to cry, Abba, Father. And it's interesting here because Paul has been writing in Greek up to this point, but here he puts in an Arabic word, Abba. This term, it's a term of endearment and affection. It implies a close relationship, a, a familial relationship. And the English equivalent would be Papa or Daddy. And it would be an odd thing to say to someone, especially if they're not your dad. Alan Geiger was the, is another Alan that I knew growing up. It would be weird if I went to Alan and said, Hey, Daddy. That would be kind of be like, Hey, Nate, that's kind of weird. I mean, I know we're friends and stuff, but... But it's not weird to say that to my dad. Why? Because he's my dad. And you see that this phrase actually is pointing to the the title, the name that Jesus himself used of his father. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was coming to the point where he knew that his time had come to take our place on the cross and to receive God's wrath and his outpouring for sin. And so, in, in his humanity, in grief and agony, he calls out to God. In Mark 14, 35 through 36, and he said, it says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. No other person had ever referred to Yahweh as Abba. It would have been too inappropriate, too personal, blasphemous even. For Jesus, though, it's natural. And he is giving that right to us as well. But notice in verse 6 that the reason we have this intimate relationship with God is because of the work of the Spirit who is in our hearts calling us Abba, Father. And in, in adoption, there has to always be witnesses that say this is what actually happened. In Romans 8.16, it says that the Spirit is bearing witness in our hearts of our adoption. It makes our adoption legitimate. We know our adoption is secure because we have a new nature, we have a deep fellowship, we have a new name for our Father given to us by the Spirit. Verse 6 says the Spirit is crying from our hearts, Abba. And that what, what's getting there is from cry is a, a, like a loud yell or a shriek in frightened or, or scared, or the opposite would be joy. And when my kids 
get scared, they scream for their mom, but for the purpose of illustration, they scream for their daddy. Why do they scream for their daddy? Because I am their dad. When they're happy to see me, they come running and they scream, Dad! Which is, they're young enough to still do that and it's, I enjoy every day that it happens. When Jesus was in agony, he cried out to his Abba. My brother-in-law and his wife are in the process of adopting uh, a little boy from where they live in, in Papua New Guinea. They're actually here. The, I, also don't have a, I also have a wife who makes the best chocolate chip cookies, and I have the cutest nephew. And I will fight anyone on those two things. He was abandoned at birth and spent months in a hospital with no parents. And as we kept up on this process, I just kind of was looking into adoption. I found out that this situation is not uncommon in many parts of the world. And oftentimes, with all these babies who are abandoned and adopted, there isn't someone to give them consistent and adequate care. There isn't someone to hold them, to soothe them when they're crying. There isn't someone to uh, calm them when they're scared. And so what happens oftentimes in these, uh, these orphanages, in, in these harsh conditions in other parts of the world, is that oftentimes these babies just learn to quit crying altogether because no one's answering them. So why cry? And friends, one of the joys that we have in our adoption is to know that we have someone to cry out to. The fact that a baby cries lends itself to the very fact that they have a parent. They have a father who will answer them. Before Christ, this was not the case. No one heard us. We were like the prophets of Baal in 2 Kings 18 when they're arguing with Elijah, trying to call down fire. And when the, the priests of Baal are screaming and ranting and raving, it says the author says this, No one answered. And no one paid attention. But not so with our adoption in the family of God. Now we have a relationship, a legitimate relationship with our God. A special name that we call him. A home that he is preparing for us in glory. A family that we have to share the benefits and the joys of fellowship with. He hears us and pays attention to our needs. The point of Roman adoption was to give an inheritance to an heir. That's the whole reason you did it. And it's the same with our adoption, Christian. You have the privilege of all that God has. Everything he has is yours. You have a heavenly father who will never walk out on you, who always keeps his promises, who always lets you in, and he never lets you down. Your inheritance is that you now have a family, a fellowship, brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a destiny secured that never changes. You have the joy of knowing that your, your friends and family who have gone on before you will be in fellowship with you someday. It's being eternally and forever with our loved ones. And in the context of being free from the barriers of sin and grudges and bitterness and anger... But most of all, our inheritance is being forever in the presence with the Father who initiated our adoption, with the Son who accomplished our adoption, and with the Spirit who applied our adoption to our hearts. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why Jesus came to earth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem you from the curse of the law so that now you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are in fact a son, a daughter, a child of God. 
And instead, he has made you, like David says in Psalm 113, he has pulled you out of the ash heap and he has placed you in the presence of princes. He has made you, as Peter says, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people for his own possession. And we shall forever, as Paul says in Thessalonians, be forever with our Lord. That is a God worth worshiping. That is a God who inspired the Apostle John, who says the word love more than any other apostle. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so, he says, we are. I want to close with a few lyrics from a song that I really like from Matt Papa, an older song that he had written. I think it wraps this up very well. It says, O fount of love divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied. Mercy cleansing every stain now rush o'er us like a flood. There the wretched and vilest one stand adopted through his blood. O mount of grace, to thee we clean from the law has set us free. Once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice shall agree. Praise the Lord, the price is paid, the curse defeated by the Lamb. We who once were slaves by birth, sons and daughters, now we stand. What a God. What an adoption. All he has is yours, Christian. You are forever loved and you are forever in God's family. And that is why Jesus came to earth in the fullness of time. And with that, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, I am overwhelmed by the majesty of your plan and by the love for which that you had for your children, pulling us out of the gutter children who do not deserve your love, and yet you choose to put your love on us, a love without conditions. It's a love just because. Nothing we could ever merit, nothing we could ever earn, nothing we could ever lose. And so, God, would you remind us this Christmas season of your great love, the the fact that you humbled yourself to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that you could redeem us from the law. And make us into your family. What an amazing truth. May we never forget that. And may we be forever motivated to spread your word to draw other lost children into your family. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.